Good morning, Highland Community Church. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. While you're turning there, just a a couple things. Uh, Someone sent me an email the other day, a family from Highland. They have a six-year-old that is learning spelling words and had a spelling test. And what they do is they give the word and then they give a little sentence for context. And so the mother said, joy. And immediately the six-year-old jumped in and said, joy comes from Jesus. Happiness comes from happening. Well, as you can imagine, I have a new favorite six-year-old in the Highland Community Church family because that was the theme of last week. Also, last week's message, I mentioned that it would be great if you would read along in Philippians maybe a few times each week for four weeks. And if you do that, I'll send you a little encouragement along the way. Honestly, little little small faith here thought, well, maybe 30 people will take me up on that. Several hundred families have taken me up on that. And my coworkers have written 13 short one-page devos. I've gotten about nine of them. They're magnificent. In fact, if I had realized it, I would have had them write my sermons for the next 13 weeks. Could have saved me about 30 hours each week. So for those who are reading it, you'll be getting these one-page devos a couple each week for the next four weeks. Well, let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, Thank you for the book of joy, the book of Philippians. We ask, Father, that as we read it, you would give us joy in Jesus, even in the midst of happenings that are not always bringing happiness. Father, we pray that we would be blessed as we look at your inspired and errant word. Speak to us through it, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, Betty Ann and I moved to the Houston area to kind of restart a failed church. At the time, we were in our early to mid-20s, and there was a gal, her name was Babs. Babs was about the age of our parents, so she was a spring chicken, probably about 55 years old, and she kind of adopted us. Now, frankly, I wasn't worth much money, and the church didn't have much money, so it was a perfect fit. And this church, the last year I was there, paid me $13,000. No insurance, nothing else. They gave me $13,000, which was enough to provide for Betty Ann and me and for our two foster children that would soon be adopted and to pay for my doctoral studies but 13,000 didn't pay for anything else. And so Babs, this, this gal who oozes Jesus, a couple times a year, unmerited, undeserved in every way, she would take Betty Ann and I out to lunch and she'd pay the bill. She would take us out to lunch because there was really no way we could go out to lunch on our own. And she would take us out and it was more than just getting a meal. We got Babs. And Babs is joyful. Now, Babs has a hard time walking. Looking back, I'm fairly sure she had an advanced stage of MS. 
but she oozed Jesus. But Babs didn't only adopt us. They adopted a family, or she adopted a family I'll call the Heaths. It's not their real name. The Heaths lived just down the road from the church. They never actually attended the church. Mr. Heath was a quadriplegic and bound to home, but she adopted them, and she had me adopt them as well. Understand that the Heaths lived in a dilapidated building, one that probably should not have had people in it. It was infested with lice and bed bugs and cockroaches, and there were fire ants everywhere. And when you would walk onto the property, it really smelled. It was very unpleasant. And the property was very close to Santa Fe, which in the early 1990s was still a Ku Klux Klan stronghold, that evil organization, and it added to all sorts of rivalry in the community. And Babs would visit the Heath, and, and I would go with her, and, and she would sing songs. Babs did not have a very good voice, but she sang with joy. And then I would open up the Word of God and read some scripture to them. We would give them some food, and, and then we would do something physical for them, maybe clean up the apartment a bit, or kill a number of cockroaches, or, or maybe turn Mr. Heath over and bandage some of his bed wounds. Now understand that Babs was married to a petrochemical engineer. She could have had a very comfortable life. She never needed to be in a place like this, but she oozed Jesus. She loved Jesus. She loved telling people about Jesus, and she loved ministering to people like the he's who had nobody coming to visit them except us. She lived a life of joy. That's what we have today in our text, and I want to pick up, and I want to read from Philippians 1, 12 to the first part of 18. Paul writes this, I want you to know, brothers, Christians, Christ followers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard the Imperial Guard could be the eight people that watch over the emperor, or more likely it's the Praetorian Guard, the nine to 10,000, kind of the green beret of the Roman Empire. It's become known among those nine or 10,000 about why Paul's in prison. And all the rest, that is all through Rome, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, the Christ followers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, those from the goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who preach out of envy and rivalry. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I want us to remember our setting. The year is A.D. 61. This is Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. 
He will be imprisoned again in AD 65 and 66 in Rome where he will be martyred for the faith. That's his second imprisonment. This is his first imprisonment and it follows an imprisonment in Judea. In fact, uh, we are told that his imprisonment in Judea is a city founded by Herod up near Tel Aviv, so it's up north. And frankly, Paul has been in prison for two years. He's been in prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been in prison for honoring Christ. And yet he is now in chains. It doesn't appear that he will be brought before a judge anytime soon. He's fearful that he's going to rot in prison. And so he does what he has the right to do. He appeals to Caesar. Now understand this. Not many Jews had the right to appeal to Caesar. In fact, of all of the countries that Rome had dominated, we know that there were at least 60 million, some would say as many as 100 million individuals under the boot of Rome that did not have the right to appeal to Caesar. But Paul is a unique Jew. He's one that is also a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, if he doesn't feel like he's getting his fair shake in a day in court, he can appeal to come before the Roman emperor. So Paul does that. Now we have to understand this is risky business. The Roman Empire and the Roman emperors generally do not side with those who have been arrested by Roman forces. Generally, if you've been arrested by the Roman army and empire, the Caesars aren't going to side with you. So it was very risky to appeal to the Roman emperor. Even more risky when you realize that the emperor is Nero. He is the Roman emperor from AD 54 to 68. We are in AD 61. Understand who Nero is. I'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But Nero is a butcher. Nero is famous, literally. This is kind of gross. But he is famous for dipping Christ followers in tar and lighting them with fire to be human lanterns out in his garden parties. Nero was thought by the historians of his day and many Romans of his day to be the one that lit Rome on fire, that burned the city down. 10 of the 14 sections of Rome were burned to the ground. And you remember what Nero did, right? When he burned the city to the ground, then he blamed the Christians, unleashing an incredible pogrom on Christianity. In addition, Nero saw a very popular park, one that the Roman citizens loved, and he annexed it with the purpose of building the Roman Colosseum. Now, Nero didn't build the Roman Colosseum. He dies in 68, it's not completed again until 80, but he annexes the property for that purpose and it's built under the emperor's Vespasian and his son, Emperor Titus. But do you know who built the Colosseum? It wasn't Romans. It was Jews. Jews built the Roman Colosseum. You go to the Colosseum, remember that it was captured, kidnapped Jewish men that built it. You see, from AD, uh, somewhere around 
65 to uh, 70, somewhere in that range, 66 to 70, Rome came in and ransacked all of Israel. They burned the city of Jerusalem. It was a pogrom against Jews. Who started that? Nero. He dies in the midst of it. But at the end of the pogrom, they take 100,000 Jewish men as slaves. And they're the ones that are used to build the Colosseum. Nero is no friend of Christianity. He is no friend of Jews. And it is to Nero that Paul appeals to have his day in court because he's rotted in a prison for two years in Judea. And then you remember Acts 23 to 26. Now we're in 27 and 28. He gets on a ship. Now understand that it's not just any ship. It's not a ship with a deep V-haul. We know it is an Alexandrian grain ship. These ships were devised by Rome to bring grain from the fertile Nile of Egypt to Rome to feed the population. They didn't have a V-haul. They were flat. That way they could hold lots of grain. And on this grain ship, an Alexandrian grain ship, 276 people are boarded along with the grain. Now, we don't have a lot of replicas of this anymore. In fact, we don't know a lot about the Alexandrian grain ships. Why? Because almost all of them sank. And the trip from Alexandria to Rome is 1,450 miles if you do a straight beeline. But this is a sailing vessel that tacks back and forth. This is several thousand miles on the Mediterranean. And it doesn't surprise anyone, Acts chapter 27 and 28, that the ship sinks off the island of Malta, and by God's grace, all 276 people are saved. But they're soaking wet. It's cold. It's late fall. So what would you naturally do on the beach? You're going to build a huge bonfire, right? Chapter 28 of Acts. And so they get a bunch of wood, and they start to build a bonfire. But in the wood they gathered, there is a thurion. That's the Greek word. Acts 28.4, thurion, it means creature, but it means poisonous creature. It means viper, a serpent. It's a snake. And it bites Paul. He's not really having a good period of time, is he? Two years in a Judean prison. Now he's shipwrecked. He'll be shipwrecked for three months while he recovers from a viper that bites him. Finally, spring comes. He gets on another ship. He gets to Rome. Finally, he's going to have his day in court before the Roman Caesar. But remember, he doesn't. He's kind of attached to several guards for two more years under house arrest. It could be the imperial guard, but the word used actually really refers to the praetorian guard. Nine or 10,000 individuals that Paul is attached to a couple at a time, and news begins to spread of the gospel among this, this elite, this green beret of the Romans. And Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me is a nightmare. It is terrible. I have reason to complain. I have reason to be angry. I'm sheltering in place. I'm getting nothing done. The gospel is not going forth. What is God doing? But that's not what Paul writes. 
He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What an attitude. Paul says that the gospel is going forth in the midst of this unbelievable nightmare. Now, maybe, maybe Paul's one of those people that likes shelter in place. Maybe he's one of a minority, I am not part of this, that likes this shelter in place. And maybe Paul has no people to meet, no places to go, no future plans, right? Wrong. We read in Scripture that Paul has big plans. He wanted to get to Rome, not as a prisoner, but to preach in the synagogues. Then he wanted to go on to Spain. Then he wanted to evangelize Western Europe. That's what's on his focus. He's got places to go, people to meet, things to do. He's got goals, kingdom goals. And instead, for the last four years, three months, he sheltered in place. And what he says is, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, we don't have four years, three months. But we know a little bit about shelter in place because of COVID-19. And my heart goes out to a lot of people. It goes out to those who are angry that jobs are being lost and the economy isn't open. My heart goes out to those who are very worried and fearful with compromised immune systems, knowing that if they get COVID-19, they probably will not survive it. My heart goes out to our students and our teachers who have somehow managed to turn school into an online event. And our seniors. Our seniors who are looking forward so much to certain events through their senior year have had it snatched from them. The shelter in place has been no friend, no fun for most of us. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Why is it happening? I don't know. I think there's several different possibilities people espouse to. Some say it's a judgment of God because of the sin of the world. Okay, that's possible. Some say it's the beginning of the birth pangs that will lead to the great tribulation. It's possible. I myself, I think it's just a result of a lot of sinful choices, a lot of unwise choices, wet markets, science projects that are done without ethics, a lack of communication, miscommunication, trying to treat every spot in the world or every spot, even in our country, equally, even though the virus has hot spots and low spots. I think there's a lot of reasons we are suffering because of our own foolishness, our own sinfulness. But regardless, whichever of those you espouse, or maybe another position, regardless, I believe that God wants us to use this suffering for kingdom purposes. He wants us to use the suffering to advance the kingdom, to grow to know him better, to tell others about Jesus, to have attitudes that bring glory to God. He wants us not to waste the suffering, but to use the suffering for his purposes, to advance the gospel. 
I want to share a few ways that Paul saw the gospel advanced. He wrote four books of scripture. That's like four more than you've written. While imprisoned. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He wrote them all in prison during this period of time. Wow! Talk about using suffering for God's purposes. Paul did that. Paul is sharing the gospel with those he's chained to. Think about the Praetorian Guards. They have theology 101, 201, 301, 401. They can't escape. They're hearing the gospel over and over again. And in fact, Paul says, it's gone through the whole Praetorian Guard. They all know that he's there for the sake of the gospel. In fact, it's gone throughout the city of Rome. He's not wasting the suffering. He's not moping in the midst of the suffering. He's using the suffering for kingdom purposes. In addition, Paul says that some have caught his attitude. He said some have become bold with the gospel and they're proclaiming it to others. They're catching the attitude. And I've got to ask myself, when people look at me in the midst of COVID-19, what attitude are they catching? You've got to step back and ask yourself, in the midst of COVID-19, what attitude are people catching from you? Is it just anger? Is it just worry? Is it just bitterness? What attitude? are people catching from us in the midst of COVID-19. I'm not saying that we can't differ in our opinions on what to do about COVID-19 or what our country ought to do or what our world ought to do. I'm not saying we can't voice those opinions, but how we voice them and the attitude we use and the confidence we have in the midst of COVID-19 either points people towards Jesus or away from him. And Paul, in the midst of four years, three months of isolation, has such an attitude that people are bold in their proclamation of the gospel because they see it in Paul. And I want them to see it in me. And Paul even says, you know, we've got some glory robbers. Verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. These individuals who are proclaiming the gospel in order to build themselves up. And what does Paul say? Take them out. He doesn't say that. He says, what does it matter? They're proclaiming the true gospel. Whether in truth or in pretense, I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. That's Paul's attitude. May I offer a suggestion, an encouragement maybe. In the next 24 hours, won't you find four things that God is doing in the midst of COVID-19 that bring you joy? That you can see what God is doing in a positive way? Four things. Can't you find four? And maybe share it with your small group. Betty Ann and I are in a small group with seven other couples. Or maybe share it with an accountability partner. I've got three of those. Or maybe share it with a family member or a friend. I'm going to go ahead and share some with a couple thousand of you. And that way I don't need to share it with my small group or accountability partners. Because if they're watching the sermon, I've already done it, right? 
Let me share four things that I think God is doing. It, it brings joy, encouragement to my life. Over the last few weeks, I know several people have prayed to receive Christ listening to the sermons. It boggles my mind. I know God is omniscient, all-knowledgeable. He knows all things much better than me, but I wouldn't use me. I wouldn't choose me. He's got much better vessels. But he does use me, and he does use you. So one of my joys is that God has brought several to himself because of this. Another one of my joys is I know several marriages that are being strengthened as husbands and wives are investing in the midst of this in one another. I'm very specifically praying for a handful of marriages that I think can go either way through COVID-19. And I'm asking God to cause the wife to look to the husband and the husband to look to the wife and both to look to God and for their marriages to be strengthened. I've seen several be strengthened. God is doing it. I've seen families, families strengthened as they play games together. We've done that as a family. We've played a lot of games and it's been great joy. In fact, we've not only played games with our family, we played games with another family from Highland. You say, whoa, social distancing. Call 911, we're gonna bust this boy. No, no, listen carefully. We haven't gotten together, but we're playing games together. We're actually playing them with the Bijaks. And just a little hint, if you're gonna play games with another family and they're going to be physically fit games, choose somebody other than the Bijaks. Like they are physical specimens, right? So the first one we did was jump roping, 10 days of jump roping. And you have to give your top two scores and you need to jump without stopping and without missing a beat. That is if you catch your foot and then that's it. Your top two scores. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm proud of myself. My top score was 175 jumps in a row. Madeline Bijak. Human kangaroo, over 700 jumps in a row without a miss. <laughs> well, we played the game with the Bijaks for, for 10 days. Actually, we only got through eight. We're not Green Berets. Now we're playing a, a game with the Bijaks, bop it. And you have to take your top two scores, and we kind of have this, uh, um, I don't know, map kind of like the World Cup where you have to get to the next round and the next round. And, and I don't know anything about Bop It. We've done one day, and I won't even tell you my scores. They're terrible. In fact, the Bop It itself, I want to throw it out the window. It mocks me and says, please concentrate, because I get to like five or 10, or my top is 32, and it still mocks me. What am I saying? Utilize the suffering. Families can play games together, even if they're long distance, even if they're over the phone or the internet or Zoom. Don't waste the suffering. Another Christ sighting, God sighting. When I decided to ask the congregation, hey, would some of you join me in reading Philippians 12 times? I'm not joking. I thought 30 would be my top number. Several hundred families reading through Philippians. 
That's a God sighting. Don't waste the suffering. Paul looked for those kind of God sightings. And even when things didn't go his way, he saw a silver lining. Look at verses 15 to 18. He talked about these individuals who are proclaiming the gospel, not for God's glory, not to build up the kingdom, but so that they might be puffed up and look good in the eyes of others. If I were Paul, I would say, whack them, smack them. What are they doing? But Paul says, you know, they're not damaging the gospel. If they were damaging the gospel, we would look at the book of Galatians, where the Judaizers are adding to the gospel, and Paul says, let them be anathema, let them be cursed, let them burn in hell. But in Philippians, the gospel is still going forth. And the gospel is recognizing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus went to the cross, paid the penalty of our sin, died for our sin, rose again, that if by faith we would believe in Jesus, receive him as our Savior and Lord, we would be given eternal life. And even these individuals who are preaching out of rivalry, they're preaching the gospel. Paul says in verse 15, they're preaching out of envy or strife or rivalry. Verse 17, they're preaching out of selfish ambition. And yet Paul says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, the gospel is going forth. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I loved a couple weeks ago, it was April 7th, that a number of churches in our area did a day of fasting and prayer together. You know, if you saw all the churches that were involved, you'd say, well, what's the commonality? It's that we all believe in the gospel. We believe that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we agree on everything else now? Do we agree on all end time documents now? Do we agree on egalitarian and complementarian now? Do we agree on political view? No. Lots of things we don't agree on, but we agree on the gospel, so we join together to petition our God not to waste the suffering, to do great things for his glory, for the gospel to go forth, for protection, for healing spiritually and physically for our land. I loved it. I loved it. I think back in the 1700s, you've heard of the name John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were great evangelists on both sides of the pond, both in England and the United States in the 18th century. But they had very different views of theology. John Wesley was Arminian. That means that he believed that man's free will dominates. George Whitfield was reformed. He believes that God's sovereignty dominates. Very different views of theology. Both proclaim the gospel. One day a reporter came up to John Wesley. This is journalistic yellow baiting at its worst. All the way back in the 18th century. And the journalist said to John Wesley, do you believe that you will see George Whitfield in heaven when you get there? John Wesley looked at him and thought for a moment and said, absolutely not. And the reporter was delighted because this was good reporting. This was something worth writing about. He said, really? Then you don't believe that 
that George Whitfield is converted to Christ. And John looked at him incredulously. He said, of course, of course George Whitfield is converted to Christ. But I won't see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away. Here are two men, Christ followers, different views of theology. And yet they did not choose to hurt one another, to talk down about one another. They didn't allow their bitter rivalry or envy or party spirit to enter into their theology. Not at all. They rooted each other on to advance the kingdom. There is no place. There is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for envy and rivalry and party spirit. But it happens sometimes. It happens when pompous pastors try and dominate. It happens when an elder board tries to dominate, which doesn't happen with our excellent elders. It happens when a Sunday school teacher tries to attract people from other Sunday school classes. It happens when a church purposely tries to recruit from other Christ-following churches. It should not happen in the church of Jesus Christ. It should never happen. But Paul says, if it does, what then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. I don't even understand those words. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's in there for four years, three months. Some people, who are the people? Scholars say that they're probably longtime attenders in the church at Rome, and they don't like the fact that Paul is coming to town, and some people are looking to Paul for answers rather than them, so they're looking to put Paul down. They're looking to criticize everything Paul says. They're looking to divide and conquer so that everybody looks at them rather than at Paul. And what does Paul say? Well, if they were attacking the gospel, he'd say, let them be anathema, let them be cursed, let them burn in hell, Galatians. But since they're still proclaiming the gospel, he says, hey, what does it matter? What does it matter? There's something more important than the preacher, and that's the proclamation. <coughs> that's a hard lesson, isn't it? There's something more important than us. There's something more important than our opinions. There's something more important than our popularity, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. And what does Paul say? I rejoice because the gospel is going forth. Friends, don't waste the suffering. Don't waste the suffering, and remember that your joy doesn't come from happiness or happenings, it comes from Jesus. Don't waste the sufferings. And with Paul, in the midst of the sufferings, even if you're going to vote for change, even if you're going to call for change, even if you're going to uh, activate for change, do it in a God-centered way. Because what matters the most is Jesus. Paul pointed to Jesus in the midst of his sufferings. May you do that as I know many of you do, may I do it as well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the model of Paul. I thank you for his life and how he lived and what you caused him to write. 
And Father, may we rejoice like Paul. Rejoice because we know Jesus. Even if we're not happy because of the happenings, even if we disagree with what is or is not happening, or we agree, let us still, either way, take our confidence from you. And Father, as we struggle to give our voice to what is happening, whether pro or con, may we do so in a way that brings glory to you. As we struggle with the at-home commands, may we do so not wasting the suffering, but sharing it with others. Father, may we call neighbors and friends who don't know Christ and share our confidence in Jesus. Or for those who are cocooning, even with an unbeliever, not being overbearing, but testifying about Christ and, and where our confidence comes from, it comes from you. Father, work in and through us for your glory and your betterment and the advancement of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.